On November 2nd, 1987, at 1.15 a.m. in Ada, Oklahoma, the victim felt a gun at the back of her head as she unlocked the door to her home. She was pushed inside, robbed and raped by a black man who was described as between 5'7 and 6'2, wearing a hat, a jacket, and perhaps a gold tooth. Detectives filmed a Crime Stoppers reenactment video about the robbery and rape, and they approached Perry Lott, who was parked nearby. While they asked him a few questions about his whereabouts during the incident, they noticed that he had a gold tooth. And Perry, a bit of a ladies' man, explained that he was in the area to see his girlfriend, but had been with his fiancée from 3.30 p.m. on November 1st through 6.30 a.m. the following morning. Despite his alibi, police brought him in for further questioning. There, they put him into a lineup, and the rest of the men were given, get this, gold foil from a nearby florist to simulate having a gold tooth. The victim, not surprisingly, identified Perry Lott then and there as her attacker. A rape kit had been done the morning of the incident, but in 1987, DNA technology was not yet available to exclude Mr. Lott, as it later would. And Perry Lott, tragically, was sentenced to 300 years for rape, robbery, burglary, and making a bomb threat related to the incident. In this episode, which was recorded at an art show opening featuring the work of an innocent man on death row in Texas, Rob Will, we interviewed Perry Lott and Eric Cullen, the private investigator that was originally tasked with taking Perry's DNA swab, only to end up becoming one of his fiercest and most loyal advocates. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. We have two incredible gentlemen in the studio with me today. And the studio is not even a studio, but I'll tell you more about that later. Um, first of all, I'll save the best for last. We have Eric Cullen, private investigator, who has played an active role in more reversals now than I can count on probably both hands. It's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. And. With Eric is a gentleman who he was instrumental in helping to free an individual who served three decades, 31 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, DNA proved it. Perry, welcome to the show. I'm really honored to have you here. Greetings, Jason. It's very exciting to be here also. I've been looking forward to this for, for some months now. Oh, that's awesome. And after 31 years in prison, this is your first first ever it's very exciting. So we can call this the exclusive interview with That's Perry right. Lott. That's yeah. right. Perry, let's go back to the beginning. First of all, your case took place in Ada, Oklahoma, and Ada has become synonymous with wrongful convictions. Yes, sir. Because John Grisham exposed the fact that there were six wrongful convictions in the space of just over a year in this tiny town, and those were profiled in his book, An Innocent Man, or four of them were, and you happen to fall into that town not knowing that it was, I mean, a trap. That's right. And you were a young man at the time. 24 right? years old. 24 years old. You still look pretty young for what it's worth. But <laughs> Thank you. I but, grew old and didn't know it. And, and this case, um, it has a lot of the common factors that we see in wrongful conviction cases. Yes. Um, of course, it has the most common factor, eyewitness misidentification, a cross-racial eyewitness misidentification, yes. which we know are even more unreliable than same race. Uh, and those are notoriously unreliable. Uh, yes. And they've played a factor in a higher percentage of wrongful conviction cases than anything else. So let's go back to when this happened and how it happened, because you were teaching school at the time, right? And you well, that was in Wisconsin. 
1986, around Christmas time, I get a call from an old girlfriend in Atoka, Oklahoma. And I was between jobs, you know, feeling kind of bad about my surroundings, seeing a lot of negativity that I didn't want to get involved with. So relocating Oklahoma was my option, my best option. And that's what I did. I went to Oklahoma, ended up in Atoka, worked there for a couple of weeks, found a better job in Ada and moved to Ada. And that was the beginning of my sorrows. That's a very uh, eloquent way of putting it. And Eric, I want to turn to you for a second. So can you take us back to this case? I mean, this was a horrible crime. A local woman in Ada had her home broken into after one in the morning. The assailant pushed her into her house, stole money from her purse, and did unspeakable things to her. Yeah, so the victim always contended to uh, police and testified at trial that she received several prank calls at her home, harassing calls, I think she might have stated. Then she goes to work, which is basically across the street to a restaurant she managed called Arby's. Um, There, she works her complete shift, or just about her complete shift, and she claims that a bomb threat was levied by the same voice that had been calling her and harassing her at her home all day. Now it starts to sound like a horror movie, right? Right, right. And so she clears her store, calls the police, no bomb. They go ahead and um, close the store down. And she claims again that the same caller calls the store again and asks why she closed the store down. I told you I was going to blow the place up if you didn't close the store down. Uh, Of course, the building never blew up. That's what she contended all the way through trial. Then she goes at approximately 1 to one thirty, home, back across the street. That's where she uh, testified that one black male had uh, pushed her in her home, uh, put a condom on, and raped her. And then took upwards of $200 from her purse. And then she also claims, of course, she lost deposit receipts from the Arby's closeout cash, too. Right. And he did other disgusting things. It was a picture of her daughter in the house that he apparently uh, yes. had sort of, you know, did sexual things to the photograph and like very, he's a very bizarre character, whoever this guy was. Correct. That's what she testified to. Perry, did you know anything about this crime? It is a small community. Did, it, did the word get around? I did not know anything about the crime. When I was first approached by Officer Crosby, I was in that area of the crime scene, but I had no idea a crime had been committed. I had no idea who this woman was. Then remember that name Crosby, everyone who's listening, because that's going to be a crazy development as we go on with this story. So in this case, we know that the eyewitness misidentification was not inadvertent, right? It wasn't, a, it wasn't an accident. She was steered is probably too light of a word to describe how they ended up convincing her to identify you. And we know that the mind is not a camera. I think a lot of people think that you see something, you recognize it, you remember it. That's not the way it works at all. That's right. And, of course, again, in the cross-racial situation, it's even more prone to mistakes. But the victim had described that her assailant had a gold tooth or half a gold tooth, right? That's what they say. Personally, I don't believe she ever mentioned a gold tooth in her initial description of her assailant, mainly because of this. 
I seen the police report where the victim gives a description. At the very end was a gold tooth, like it had been added on. She wasn't able to identify his uh, his hair color or type because he because wore a hat. hat. Yeah, and he wore a jacket and things like that. Yes. And her description was so general that she said that it was just a black male between 5'7 and 6'2. That That's describes right. most people, right? That's, that describes entirely the whole black community, mostly. Yeah. How did it get from there to where Perry ends up in a lineup? He had an alibi on top of everything else, a, a, a very solid alibi, right? But yes. they, they didn't care about that. No. How they landed on Perry was they were doing a recreation of the crime for a, a show called Crime Stoppers down there at the time. They would run on unsolved crimes or, or you know, fresh crimes even. And they were filming that day. And Perry had been in the neighborhood visiting someone just a block away. He goes, turns the corner and sees these camera crews up there and he stops on the side of the road to watch. Detective Crosby goes and approaches Perry at the car notices the gold tooth, and it's all downhill from there. Yes. You, you voluntarily went into the police station, and I, I imagine when you went in there, you probably thought, well, I mean, I'm just going in and tell them what I know and go home. Yes, sir. Uh, like I said, Mr. Crosby came and approached me that night. They questioned me for hours at the police station, searched my car, searched my home, took me back to the police station, released me with the words, you can go home, but don't leave town. So I went home and my fiance was there. And evidently they had questioned her while they were questioning me. And we had a lot of a tizzy, a, a little bit of a spat because I just recently came to her home from Wisconsin. And now she's hearing that, hey, your boyfriend might be a rapist, you know, so of course she's going to be on edge somewhat. That next morning at work, I was approached by Crosby again. Uh, would you mind helping us out? We need to need you to be in a lineup. Like, you know, I'm just doing what any average citizen would do. Doing what my dad had always taught me to do is obey the police, cooperate, don't get disrespectful. So I'll go to the police station with them and uh, participate in his lineup. Right. And then it's almost comical to think that they had, they said there's nothing funny about it. They took the other men that they put in lineup and put aluminum foil as yeah. if to simulate a gold tooth in their mouth. But you were the only one that actually had a gold tooth. That's right. Plus they had you say the words that she said she had heard. Uh -huh. And uh, after the lineup, he comes with a shit eating grin on his face. Uh, yeah, uh, she picked you out. I said, what? She picked me? Uh, yeah, she picked you. And I'm, you know, right there, I'm just in a whirlpool of confusion. So I'm in the city jail for a couple of weeks, you know, screaming, hey, I didn't do this. You guys making a mistake. Nobody heard that. Nobody wanted to hear that. They moved me across the street to the county jail. And I stayed there for a couple of months at least. The court-appointed attorney never came to see me, never knew who I was until just right before time for appearances in court. His name was Frank Baber. And uh, me being so naive, since I didn't do this, I'm thinking this is be a easy as flipping over a pancake to get me out of this situation. There's so much that he allowed to go on 
that I now know he should have been objecting. It's like, hey, uh, are you on my side or are you on their side? That's what I was thinking in my head. Because at the time, even being totally unaware of what the law says, you get a feeling as a defendant. If someone is vigorously trying to defend you, I didn't get that feeling. Sounds like he was more processing you than defending you. He was and processing, that's right. Did you hold out any hope that they were going to find you innocent? or how, what were you? I had always thought they would find me innocent because I knew that they had no evidence of me doing anything. I knew that I had not done anything. I'm thinking that this has gone all the way up into picking a jury and you guys still think I did this? How can you think I did this? What I did not know at the time was that eyewitness testimony was considered evidence. That's what got me. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, where's the rape kit? Where's the fingerprints? Where's yeah. the picture that you say was taken out of the home? Where's the money that you say was missing? I was flat broke at the time. Hell, when they searched my house, they found a $20 bill that my fiance had hidden in her dresser. And it floated to the floor. And I asked Jeff Crosby, I said, can I have that? And he says, yeah, you can have that. So I picked up that $20 bill and put it in my pocket. I didn't know better. So I ended up in prison. And uh, the trial lasted all of eight hours. Eight hours. The trial lasted less than a working day. And you were sentenced to? 300 years. 300 years. Consecutive sentences. Four charges, four different sentences. 100, 150, and 50 for rape, robbery, burglary, and bomb threatening. 300 years. 300 is such a, it's total. such a preposterous concept. I yes, mean, it is. just the idea that we even do that in this country. You hear, you hear these sentences a thousand years, and Oklahoma is notorious for these. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not minimizing the nature of the crime, but Jesus Christ. Um, anyway, Eric. An interesting side note. Um, pre-trial. I think it's interesting back, back to how they were doing things in Pottnatok County, Ada. Williamson and Fritz were in jail with Perry. Sure was. Wow. And Williamson and Fritz were two of the men that were profiled in the John Grisham, uh, the only nonfiction book that John has ever written. That's correct. The Innocent Man. Mm -hmm. And John told me, uh, John was on wrongful conviction. Mm -hmm. He said that when he wrote that book, he had to write it as nonfiction. He says, because when I write fiction, I have to make it believable. And he goes, these stories, the audience is not going to follow along. I'm going to lose my readers because this doesn't make any logical sense. Right. And Williamson and Fritz, it's an unbelievably tragic case of two men wrongfully convicted and one of whom lost his mind in prison and just months after he was released, ended up dead. Yeah. Really, really sad. And That's he had correct. been a, a Oakland A's pitching prospect. He had had his life ahead of him. And the whole thing is a tragedy on top of a tragedy, not to mention that there was no justice for the victim, which was a rape and murder case. Um, and I want to go back to this um, uh, eyewitness identification. If you, the listener, end up on a jury and you have a Perry lot in front of you, you're in a criminal case and there's no evidence except eyewitness identification, you should keep this in mind. And I'm quoting from the amazing book, uh, Convicting the Innocent by Brandon Garrett, which is sort of like the Bible of wrongful conviction causes and practices that lead to them. 
He said that many DNA exoneration cases involving mistaken eyewitnesses involve the use of suggestive identification procedures. A study of the first 250 DNA exonerations revealed that an incredible 88% of the mistaken witness exonerations involved either factors that are known to affect the reliability of the identification, some suggestiveness in the identification procedure, or both. And in this case, it was both. So the jury comes in. It was the most surreal moment of my life. When the jury came back and they found me guilty, all I could do was stare in the space. I was just sitting there in shock. And when they started reading off the terms 100 years, 100 years, I was paralyzed, wondering what, how can they be allowed to count more than a person can actually live? If I die in prison, you still gonna make me do time? What the fit, you know? I mean, it's like you said, it just don't make sense to give a person more time than a lifespan. You know what I mean? Right. In case you come back to life, maybe they want to put you back in prison. I don't know. know, And then you'd have to come back to life at least a couple of times and still live a long life each time. So the whole thing's ridiculous. I had a discussion with Eric just last night. I said, you know, they should take the sentencing portion of the trial out of the jury's hands because they are citizens. They get emotional. They are angry. When they get the details of these crimes, whether it's uh, coerced or whether it's fabricated or whether it's just plain fact, these people have emotional attachments to that. And that's why they give people these exponential amounts of time when, you know, 100 years is enough to see a person die in prison. But you want to go overkill and... Right. And even the just breaking it down to a granular level, just the idea that they send you to 50 years for robbery and the robbery was one hundred and twenty dollars. Right. Or whatever it was, two hundred dollars. Something like that. I mean, and 50 for the bomb threat. Additionally, 50 for the bomb threat as well. Yeah. And we know, of course, that these threats went on. And there were other cases after Mm -hmm. Perry was arrested and convicted where whoever the actual perpetrator was continued with the same M.O., which should be not even a red flag, should be a flashing red light where they go, (laughs) hold up. This is. We yeah. got, you know, we, we fucked up. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that, that's not what happened. So, so you get taken to prison. Yes. Prison life. After sitting in the county jail for four or five months, you're kind of glad to go to prison. So it's, it's a real messed up thing in the mind. You know, it's like they say the eyes will play tricks on you. After a certain amount of time with a traumatic situation or a unfamiliar situation the mind will start playing tricks on you too you hear things you see things you imagine things so once i did get in the doc system i was glad to have a bed i was glad to have fresh clothes a shower movement uh the things you don't get in the county jail so that took a lot of pressure off of what i was going through at the time then i think most people don't realize, but I hear from so many of the exonerees that jails are worse than prisons. And it's actually logical when you think about it. I think people hear the word jail, they think of like that classic thing in the movies where it's like a country place. It ain't ain't like Barney and Andy Griffin. No, it ain't like that. So, you know, it's true all over the country. In jails, it's just a powder keg because everybody's in the cell together. There's no recreation. There's no education. There's no release of anything. There's no outdoors. There's nothing. So, and as you said, no clean clothes. I mean, it's really, 
And it's designed to break people and actually make them confess to crimes they didn't commit just to go home. Mm -hmm. These places are dirty. They're incubators of disease. I wouldn't uh, wish it on my worst enemy. A lot lot of uh, informant, jailhouse and snitch stuff comes out of that environment too. But now you went to the prison and you're sentenced to, well, life because 300 years. We know you weren't going to live that long. It's a miracle you lived through this whole experience in the first place. It surely is. I went in at 24 years old, waited three or four years for the direct appeal. Once that was affirmed, I had no idea how the hell they affirmed that. Affirmed your conviction. I, how do you do that with the facts all laid out? I should have been home after three or four. I knew enough about law to know that what the jury says is what the jury says. However, that's what the appeal process is for. To correct To, re- to rectify what the jury in the courtroom allowed that should never have been allowed. When I was affirmed, I knew that I had a war on my hands. I had to become my own attorney because my family could not afford to help me. They were so far away in Wisconsin. I was basically by myself against the state. I like to point out to people when I talk to them about this, when it says lot versus state, it's just like Oklahoma versus Texas. You're at war. I had to learn as quick as possible, as much as possible about what avenues is going to get me set free because now I am here and it doesn't have a back door. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. 
In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery, complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up, just like a game-winning play on the field, and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Well, once I got to about 12, 15 years in, I started losing it. I started losing hope. I started thinking I just might die in here. And uh, 2002 was the first time I went up for parole. Nothing changed. In 2005, I had a near-death experience with staph infection. That's why I am partially disabled now. Staph infection had gotten into my system. I didn't even know what staph was. So it lingered in my body, actually got into my blood and Mercer and attached to my spinal cord and my neck. And it, it was eating through the vertebrae in my neck, exposed a few nerves, and uh, I'm lucky to be alive. So 2005, I was hospitalized. So they skipped over my parole hearing. Jesus. Yes, yes. They, they totally skipped over my parole hearing. So I had to wait until 2008. That was probably the only time I ever considered dying in prison. And uh, that was 2005. Between 2005 and 2008, I saw and I sensed that I wasn't ever going to be released by this parole board. Well, because they probably wanted you to admit guilt, right? I wrote a letter thinking that if I admit to this crime, they just may give me some relief. Because in prison, you are under the impression that they want some kind of remorse. They want some kind of confession. They want to see you broke down especially when you've been claiming to be innocent. So I'm thinking I'm going to give them what they want. I'm going to manipulate my way out of here. That's after so many years of being in, you start thinking like this. Well, the truth isn't working, so now I'm going to lie and see if that'll do anything. Well, between 2008 and 2011, the Innocence Project took my case. The first thing I did was told my attorneys, hey, look, we got an issue. I've already confessed to these crimes. I didn't do them. But I confessed to him trying to manipulate and got the letters retracted. And we explained why I did that. It was kind of like a duress. And that was probably the last time I had given up hope. But prior to that, I had already started feeling like it's hopeless against this. There's no way I'm going to be able. I mean, I had done a stack of briefs like this on my case and good good law work, prose litigant law work, and nothing ever worked. I said, damn, you know, the law is written. Why aren't you guys giving me some relief? Why aren't you actually paying attention to the laws that were Everything written? Everything in the law says that I should be getting some kind of relief from the state. You guys never really proved anything here. 
why am I in prison? What connection do you have other than this eyewitness testimony? Whew. Being denied so many times was detrimental because when you feel like you have no hope of ever reaching anybody with the truth, you become something different. And if you don't have good people around you to help you get your mind right, you're going to become part of that prison and you're never going to leave. It's kind of like the Sawshank redemption where the guy says, these walls do something to you. They do. Yeah, that movie had a profound effect on me and so many other people. Um, nobody's listening. Uh, the Innocence Project gets involved. That's obviously a huge development. That's the and only time I regained hope. Yep. Actually, I took my hands off the wheel when I knew. When you hear the word Innocence Project in prison, you know you got the kind of help you need. That place is synonymous with God. When you're an innocent person, the Innocence Project, when you hear that name, you... You, you know you're going home. Wow, that's heavy. Um, it's great to hear, having been there myself for 25, 26 years. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing. I, I never heard it put that way before, but it's, it's great to hear that. It obviously means a lot. So, Innocence Project gets involved. How did you get involved, Eric? And how did you help to resolve this? And how the hell is he here instead of serving <laughs> another 270-something uh, years uh, or 268 to be exact? That's my champion right there, man. So I, um, I was working on uh, some other post-conviction cases and um, Karen Thompson had reached out to me on a referral from um, some lawyers that I was working with on those cases. So in 2013, Karen wanted me to simply go meet Perry at Dick Connor in prison and take his DNA sample. And, and then, of course, to get that sample to Cellmark, which is uh, who... The Innocence Project uses to test their DNA. Right, the DNA lab, very famous yeah, yeah, DNA they're lab. Very, they're the best. Selmar. And in the meantime, Karen went ahead and assigned me some other duties. One of those things was to uh, find an alternate suspect and find the individual who actually did this. Well, I spent a lot of time doing that and doing my own covert methods of obtaining DNA, such as posing as somebody from a casino with a, you know, I pulled this guy's trash that I thought, you know, done it. And he's a big casino guy. I show up, the gift card, hey, lick this envelope. We actually went that far, you know, tested it in the whole bit. And the it was gift card trick. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, uh, but it was very disheartening. Uh, this guy had been acquitted of two rapes, I think, or one, one dismissal and one acquittal all within this, somewhat of a similar MO. And, uh, man, we were pretty confident it was him. And, of course, a little heartbroken to find out it wasn't. But then again, we don't want to be part of wrongfully accusing people either, so we moved on from this, this guy. And so we continue to move along. The whole time, though, in the mean meantime, Karen is constantly trying to get the DA from Pottenhawk County, who's this guy that's been there since the Williamson Frit. Fontenot Ward days, they're just so stuck, I mean, in their ways. And Karen trying to budge him just to cooperate. Well, let's at least let my investigator interview this victim. And so, long story short, finally, Detective Crosby, who's still there as well, finds the victim. And it was agreed upon that 
he and I would go interview her together. And this is where shit gets real. It gets real, real. So yeah. tell us about that. Yeah. So we agreed that um, he would go first and I wouldn't interrupt him and I would go last and he wouldn't interrupt me. We get in there. The victim says that um, going along with the whole bit, uh, everything's the same. Nothing's really changed today as I sit here. And, and then at some point, um, of course, me being in the room, um, I've done a no telling how many interviews of individuals from uh, defendants to suspects. You just get the body language part two. You can't really read in the transcript. I could see something change in her body language that was um, very much in, uh, in line. And the energy was that she was ready to get this off her chest and tired of carrying this around. And in fact, in the transcript, you can read in there, he actually asked her if she's okay during his questioning of her. It was really light, you know, and she had to get a drink of water. Her mouth was dry, stuttering things like that. And then it was my turn. And, and then in the beginning of my interview with her, she was definitive that it was still Perry. She was definitive that it was his voice and that that voice is what carried her through her certainty it was Perry. And then the best thing I had to do, and I've done this many times, was, and again, I knew she had other things to say, Okay, well, I'm ready. Is that all you have? Well, yeah, okay. Well, I'm okay. Well, let's wrap it up. I appreciate your time. I know this has been tough. And then she tells me more. I do that about three times. She ends up telling me that she identified Perry on a hunch. That on a hunch. On a hunch. That she did not receive multiple calls that day at her home, that she only received one call at the Arby's at her work, that there were two men there, not one, and the, the coup de grace was is that it wasn't even his voice. So this was a, I see you smiling now, I mean, that was a eureka moment for you. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I was so stunned that I didn't even realized she had said they and two men in the interview as we sat there, as, as this was unraveling. And at this point, Detective Crosby starts to interrupt, interject, and sway her, even to the point of telling her that, deep into her confession, so to speak, that he still thinks he parries the guy that did that to her. Her story totally flipped when Eric got in front of her. Uh, read the transcripts attached to post-conviction relief filing. I mean, um, you could see I, I was ready to leave her home three times, and she wasn't ready for me to leave. She wanted to, she wanted to get this off her chest. Right. And then, then, and then, yeah, right. then things start to really roll. And then, yeah. so at what point did you know you were going home? At like I said, the Innocence Project took my case in 2011, and it was a couple of years after that, 14, when you got involved, when they came and got my DNA inside the prison. I think that was the moment I knew I was going home. Eric, can you just explain the DNA findings in this case and how they impacted the outcome? Yes. Yeah, so there were uh, two contributors found in uh, the victim's canal per the rape kit done in 1987. 
uh, her ex-husband was uh, generous enough to, to meet with me and uh, allowed me to collect his DNA as well. And that was one of the matches. The other match is still unknown. I have my uh, thoughts on who it is as I sit here, but uh, Perry was excluded. That didn't do it. Those, those are the magic words. Perry was excluded. Yes. Karen and I are obviously very excited. The project's excited. But uh, Ada, being Ada, this, none of this was good enough. That still wasn't good enough. They're still going to fight it. They're still going to fight the DNA. They're still going to fight basically a confession from the victim. And then so they're forcing this, the state, all the way to a post-conviction relief hearing. And so July 9th of 2018, that, that was uh, one of what would probably be two to three hearings. Jeff Crosby is slated to testify on July 9th. And, of course, I'll let Perry tell the audience, tell you what, what happened on the 9th, but on the 7th, unbeknownst to Perry and the team, Detective Crosby had taken his own life. So two days before the Saturday and Sunday, I was appearing in court that Monday. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we'll never know, but do you have any theory as to why he did that? I mean, the timing is not coincidental. That would be my only thought. I'm an investigator. I'm not a fan of coincidence. So I didn't find it coincidental at all. He was getting ready to get chopped up on the stand on Monday. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. I think people at home are probably wondering why in the world would DNA scientifically proving that Perry had nothing to do with this crime and with the victim herself recanting her testimony, and with no evidence whatsoever connecting him to it, why is he on probation? Well, first off, that was um, something that Perry had to discuss with his two attorneys at the time. I wasn't part of that conversation, but I know enough that I can speak about it. The risk out of that county, because it's a district judge that hears this, they transitioned to a new DA, but it's still the same type of mindset in that county. Mm -hmm. So the risk with all of this being put before a judge of still losing was still there, believe it or not. And so Perry and, and his attorneys had to decide, 
do we want to take that risk or do we want to go home today and live to fight another day? In almost any other circumstance, anywhere else, you would just put this up in front of a judge, put your evidentiary hearing on, judge takes some time for finding the facts and law, and you'd get your ruling of actual innocence. It makes no sense, and it truly no. is a, a Sophie's choice. I had spent now 20-something years, 25 years or so, wondering how the hell do these people got me in prison and how come I can't get myself out of this. Karen helped me figure that out by helping me see that all of the things that we think should go right when other people in power don't want it to go right, they have the power to make it go wrong. So she kept asking me, she said, how do you do it? How do you do it? And it's talking about keeping a smile and a good attitude with all of this other stuff. How are you always in such a good mood? I said, it's just, I, I love people. I cannot let this situation change me. Matter of fact, that's one of the things that I decided at that when I told you I was sitting at the defendant table in shock. I knew at that moment I had to remain in that state of mind of who I was. I had to really get a tight grip on my identity and hold on to that for dear life because I knew that this experience was going to do everything in its power to make me something I was not beginning with a rapist. Never in my life would I even consider attacking a woman when you can, you know, pretty much, I call myself a player. Back in, <laughs> back in them days, you know, you, you don't, back in them days when you got it like I had it, you didn't have to take anything from a woman. You could ask, and you ask with a certain amount of finesse. I'm not saying, you know, you don't have to say anything else. You got it. You, got it. Um, you get the impression I'm trying to make. So, but, you know, the thing is, uh, I will always appreciate Karen in my life because she helped me understand something I never could figure out in 25 years is how am I doing this? What is it that's keeping me bolstered? And I realized it was a mixture of family, church, good friends around me that had their mind on right. And she says, finally, after she had worked on my case a little while, she said, Mr. Lott, I think I got you figured out. I said, oh, yeah, well, tell me. She said, I know how you do it. And this is after I've been disabled. And I said, oh, yeah, what do you think? She said, you do it one step at a time, day by day. And the lights came on up in my head. I said, damn, you got it figured out. Now, that's when I knew I was going home, by continually walking day by day, one day at a time, and one step at a time. See, at that time, I was taking little bitty baby steps. The disability I had, I was prognosed to never walk again, to never get out of the bed again, but I struggled and struggled, and I began walking in little bitty baby steps, and then I started really pushing myself. I can take a full stride now with just a little bit of pain. And back in that time, I could take a little bitty baby step like that and it would hurt like hell. That's how it is, you know. 
Well, you answered the question before I asked it. I was going to ask whether you're bitter, and uh, I don't have to ask that anymore. Um, Penitentiary will do two things to a person. It will make them better or to make them bitter. And it's a choice that you have to make before you go in that institution. Before we go to what I call our closing arguments, and I'll explain to you what that is, just talk a little bit about what you're doing now, because you're actually working with this guy, right? Awesome. Yes. Eric approached me about a job, and I said, well, give me time to think about it. I was disabled, not really confident in my abilities, not knowing that I had abilities. A couple of months went by, I said, hey, I need an answer. I said, okay. And he told me that I could earn so much money, which is like twice as much as I would get on disability. And I didn't feel right on disability anyway. So when I had the job opportunity, I wanted to jump at it, but I was hesitant because of my state of mind. You know, what can I do? I'm 30 years missing in action, no record of work history, no record of medical history. I didn't know I had any ability at all. So when Eric offered me the job, I said, man, give me time to think about that. And I'm just trying to figure out a way to tell him no. <laughs> and eventually, man, he made an argument with me. As I couldn't deny that I could probably do this job. In prison, I did this for 25 years trying to get out of prison. I call it combing the records. You know how they have a rape kit and they comb the pubics? They're looking for whatever doesn't belong in those pubics. When I comb the records, I look word for word, line for line, looking for what doesn't belong here or what's missing from here. And it's a skill that you develop without knowing that you're actually developing it, you know, because when you work on your own case daily for 25 years, you don't realize it, but you grow old and you grow knowledge of the law and how it should be applied. Perry works for another, the 501c3, the, another chance justice project. And then we work on wrongful convictions and excessive sentencing and some commutation there. But my private firm is Cullen and Associates. Perry is employed through the project. Cullen and Associates. Yeah, we should, it, yeah. we should shout that out a little bit. And yeah. of course, one of my favorite human beings who's also been on the show, Michelle Murphy, yeah. who served 20 years, uh, was exonerated with DNA, mm -hmm. the only female DNA exoneree from Oklahoma. Uh, I encourage people to listen to that episode. It's an incredible episode of Wrongful Conviction. Uh, with Michelle Murphy, but so she's working with you as well. So you have, yeah, I mean, it's actually perfectly logical. You're taking people who have actually the most profound experience and yep. the most knowledge from having to, out of necessity, from having to do all this research uh, to get themselves free and to help others inside yes. uh, yeah. the penitentiary. So you've got the you got the dream team with Perry and Michelle. I love it. You know, <laughs> I think team. so. <laughs> um, so um, you know, I always say. Uh, on the show, um, you know, I'm happy you're here, but I'm sorry you're here. I mean, I'm sorry you had to go through what you had to go through to get here, but it means an awful lot that you came in and came to New York all the way from Oklahoma to share your incredible story, your spirit, your wisdom, your outlook. We got the whole Perry Lott Believe experience not, here. Believe man, know? when I found out I was going to be here, I, I just wanted to see you again, man. Well, well listen, what can I say? I'm just about to melt into a puddle over here. A puddle. <laughs> <laughs> or as the old saying goes, knock me down with a feather. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why today's episode is uh, unique is because we are 
uh, recording this in the middle of an art exhibit by an innocent man on death row in Texas, a guy named Rob Will, who has created this remarkable collection of work from his tiny cell. Uh, I can't not mention that it's um, sort of a heavy day as well, because as we sit here, Texas is probably in the process in the last couple hours before they carry out another execution of an innocent man. Uh, Larry Swearingen is going to be executed today, almost certainly in spite of evidence of his actual innocence. So um, we'll just have a moment of silence for Larry. Okay, so this is the part of the show um, where, again, uh, this is my favorite part of the show. I think it's a lot of people's favorite part of the show. We get feedback online, et cetera, where um, I get to once again thank you two um, outstanding freedom fighters for coming and being on Wrongful Conviction with me. Um, Eric, I know we'll be doing more of these in the future and we're yeah. working together on various cases and I'm yeah. a huge uh, fan of your work. Uh, I think you're one of the top people in the country at what you do and uh, we need more of you. So Eric Cullen, uh, thank you again for being here. My pleasure. And Perry, uh, again, I've thanked you before. I'll thank you again and I'm looking forward to working with you in the future and spending more time together. And now, like I said, this is what we call closing arguments. So this is where I get to turn my microphone off. I kind of kick back, rock back in my chair and just listen and turn the microphones over to you for your closing thoughts. I call it closing arguments. It was really closing thoughts on anything you want to say, anything we may have left out or anything at all. And again, we'll save the best for last. No offense, Eric, no. <laughs> but oh. the star of the show is Perry. Oh, so, but, but first, um, Eric, your closing thoughts. Perry's case is, is just a shining example. Again, you covered it um, of, of the eyewitness identification problem. Uh, it's also a shining example of why Oklahoma is number one in incarcerating African-American males in the world. Uh, and then of course, on the side, 28 years in a row for females, which is a whole other topic. But there's no surprise as to why we're here when you hear Perry's story, when you hear Michelle's story, when you hear Williamson Fritz, all these different ones from Oklahoma. It's horrifying. Um, I think uh, we're at a point now where it's, it's becoming uh, bipartisan, this issue. You know, I, I think the eyes are open. You'd have to be a real fool to say that wrongful convictions don't exist now, where just several years ago, it wasn't quite there. That's what my closing argument would be. And I would add one other thing. We're not done with Perry's case. We're going to work on this till we get him fully exonerated. Perry? Yes, sir. Uh, I heard you call me the star of the show. Well, you guys are the stars of my show. You know, Without you guys in my life, I would probably be dead in prison, still in prison. So I want to thank you and honor you for that. And your audience, I want to honor you for being attentive. And I want to admonish everyone under the sound of my voice to get involved with this awareness, to get involved with the injustice, the police brutality, the only way evil like this prevails is when good people say nothing. A lot of people will see crime and close their windows, close their doors, turn their back 
and that's why we're in the state that we're in right now. We have to be courageous enough to say, I saw this. I want to say something. And the truth, you know, uh, being in prison for 31 years, I came out very battle weary. Uh, not too much confidence in my abilities, as I said before. Overwhelmed with the stimulus of the free world. I still right now today have not cooked my own first meal after being out of prison for a year and some months. I don't have the confidence to cook a meal. I don't really go into big shopping malls anymore. It's too many choices. I'm not used to that. I am enjoying the freedom of going back and forth under certain limits, being on parole or probation. But it feels good to be able to go here and there without having to ask permission, so to speak. Life is good, man, and it's getting better. You know, I have a whole lot to be thankful for. Even though this misfortune happened to me and took away a lot of my life, I tell people all the time I got a whole lot more yesterdays than I do tomorrow, so I'm going to make the most of it. And all I really want to do now is just be the best me that I can be. Not only for myself, but for anyone who's watching me, because someone's always watching. And you never know what they're going to pick up from you. So I do my best to just be the best example I can. I'm not perfect. I have a ways to go. I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty close to it. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, but honestly, you know, my heart goes out to the youth of America. You know, the violence, the gangs, the influences. Find other things to spend your time with. I really don't want to be preachy, but these are the things I've learned the hard way. You know, is ask questions. Don't take anyone's word. Find your own truth. Seek clarity, you know. Just be true to yourself. It's very important. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, everyone at home. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. 
if you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.